Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. we finally back. Uh, how you doing today? Thank you so much. It's good to see you today. And thank you so much for stopping by. And thank you for supporting the podcast like you do. I couldn't be more appreciative. I'm or more surprised by how, how we're doing here. But uh, let's get right into it. The Isles of Shoals are a group of islands, small islands, situated about six miles off the east coast of Maine in New Hampshire. They actually straddle the border of Maine and New Hampshire. I know. What in the world do these islands have to do with the Appalachian Mountains? Well, it ain't hillbilly life, but technically that part of the country has beaches that shoot straight up out of the water. Maybe not as apparent as when you go up to Nova Scotia and have a look around, but those islands are actually the tops of sunken Appalachian Mountains. Now, one of these islands is called Smutty Nose Island, and it holds a pretty dark story. It got its name from fishermen who sailed past it saying it it looked a lot like the smutty nose of some ugly sea monster sticking up out of the water they were referring to the overgrowth of seaweed growing out of one end of the island making it look like a dirty runny nose that's only 25 acres but apparently not even a 25 acre mountaintop surrounded by water can stop the oddities of the Appalachian mountains so sit on back there make yourself to home and let me tell you one that you probably never heard of Now, John Hontfeld and his wife, Marion, came from Norway back in 1868. They were the only people that lived on Smutty Nose Island there in the Isles of Shoals. Now, every morning, John would jump aboard his schooner that he called the Clarabella and head off to the fishing waters to draw in his trial lines. Then he'd sail on the market over in nearby Portsmouth, New Hampshire, where he'd sell off his fish. Then he'd take a little bit of that money and buy him a a little bit of bait and reset his lines and then sail on home by the evening. He was a tall, light-haired man who had a work ethic and had earned him respect from his friends and neighbors on the other islands. So there were maybe possibly 50 people living spread out on those islands at the time. The business was pretty good, and in fairly short order, the Huntwoods lived a pretty comfortable life in their little island. Now, I got to say, it sounds pretty blame good, living in the mountains and the beachfront at the same time. Of course, I'd like to be able to tell you that they lived happily ever after, but then I wouldn't be here talking if that's the case, would I? Now, Baron Hotman was a pretty small woman, but the furthest thing from a helpless as you could get. She did have a gentle manner with 
about her with, you know, with about everybody that she ran across whenever she was able to run across any, being that they were the only ones on the island and were surrounded by a huge boat called the Gulf of Maine. She kept her their little cottage in top shape while her husband was out earning a living, and she loved her flowers to, that she kept in sh- on the shelves in the windows where they could get good sunlight. Now, I've seen that. My grandmother and my mother did the same thing. The only thing that the Hotfords missed was their family back in Norway. They both loved their little red cottage, but Marion hated being alone while John was out fishing. The only one around was a little dog, Ring, who kept her company while John was away. The Hotfords lived on Smutty Nose for about two years before they met a nam- man named Louis Wagner. He came into their lives. Now, Mr. Wagner was a muscle-up 28-year-old Prussian man with a thick accent. Now, I myself don't know any Prussians personally, but there was a belief at the time that Prussians were troublemakers and everybody automatically puffed up around them. That was made even worse at the advent of the World Wars that came later. The majority of people in the world blamed both wars on those of Prussian descent, thinking that they were constantly scheming up something to cause trouble. In reality, from what I've gathered reading about it, Prussians have a very unique culture and most likely they're just pretty much misunderstood all around. But Lewis seemed friendly enough to the Hontfords, even though everybody else saw him as a walking, troublemaking misfit of a mystery. He never would say anything about where he'd come from, and some folks thought that he was always showing up out of nowhere like Lurch on the Adams family or setting off in a corner somewhere, eavesdropping on every word they said, all the while acting like he just didn't care and wasn't paying attention to what they were doing. Mr. Wagner fished from Star, Malaga, and Cedar Islands, which were uh, technically part of Smutty Nose, but separated by shallow waters that they call backwaterways. So it wasn't long before the three of them became close friends, and most folks thought of them as two brothers and a sister. In May of 1871, Marion's plum tickled pink at the arrival of her sister, Karen Christensen, from Norway. Karen had lost her live-in lover in Norway and was pretty blame upset over it. I know, live-in lover, 1871. Well, Norway has always been a little bit different when it comes to that type of thing, and it was way ahead of the curve on that one, you might say. But Marion was pretty sure that she could snap her sister out of what was called then a melancholy. Today it's called depression. A few weeks after she got the smutty nose, Karen got a job as a live-in maid with a family on Appledore Island, which is the, happens to be the biggest island of the Isles of Shore, Shoals. A year later, John's business had kept right on growing, so he decided to hire Louis Wagner in June of 1872. Now, Louis was more than happy to join up with John because, try as he might, he just couldn't get the hang of the fishing trade and struggled to make it. It seems that there was more than a little bit of I ain't buying no blame fish from no Prussian maybe going around too from what I could read into it. Not only did he hire Lewis, but he gave him his own room right there in the Huntford's house, and now it seemed more than ever like he was part of the family. But by October of that year, fishing started dropping off, and John found himself with more help than he needed because his brother Matthew had apparently heard that John was doing pretty good over on the island, and decided he'd come over from Norway and live on Smutty Nose, too. So, with Matthew came Marion's brother, Ivan Christensen, and his wife, Aneth. 
I guess they heard that the fishing was good, too. Ivan was a tall, well-built man, and his wife was just plain beautiful with blue eyes and thick blonde hair that fell all the way to her knees. They had been married since Christmas of that year. Now, the new arrivals were welcomed by John and Marion, and the five lived together in the cottage. Ivan and Matthew went to work for John, and Aneth helped Marion keep house. Louis Wagner stayed on with the Huntwitz for about five more weeks and then went to work as a hand on another fishing schooner named the Addison Gilbert, and he left Smutty Nose that November. The Huntwitz hated to see him go, but they were happy that they were able to help the friend when he needed it. But for some reason, just like before, Mr. Wagner's luck took another nose dive. The Addison Gilbert was wrecked, and Lewis was reduced to working along the Portsmouth Wharf. And that, my good friends, was long, hard, low-paying, back-breaking work. He earned so little that he was barely managed to pay room and board to the Johnsons, who he was now staying with. Uh, by March of 1873, he was in pretty bad shape. His only pair of shoes were worn plumb out, his clothes were tattered, and he owed three weeks' rent. Folks, that's what you call down and out. Now, after a long and unusually hard winter, spring finally sprung, and the sun rose in the clear blue sky as John, Matthew, and Ivan set sail that morning of March 5, 1873. It looked like another perfect day to haul in a catch. They planned to draw in the trial lines and go sell the day's catch in Portsmouth. Then Bob 8, which was coming in on the early train from Boston, go out, reset the lines, and head on home. Same as always. Once they got out on the water, they met a neighbor and asked him to stop by Smutty Nose and tell the women that the winds had changed in their favor of selling directly to the mainland so that they wouldn't be swinging by and leave one of the men on the island like he had been doing. They'd be home later that evening. They'd been swinging by, you know, and dropping off one of them, and then they went to, the other two went to sell the catch so the women wouldn't be there alone. Uh, it was late that afternoon before the women got the message and had already got supper ready. So they decided to keep it hot until the men came home. Karen was now living on Smutty Nose, too, because she had left her live-in job to take a job as a seamstress in Boston, which, and she was staying with the family for, you know, a spell before they, she moved on to Boston. When the Clarabella docked in Portsmouth early that evening, Louis Wagner was there to tie the boat off. He asked John and the others if they'd be heading back to Smutty Nose that evening, which was a question they thought was pretty odd, but didn't raise any suspicion. John said that they'd be heading back home if the bait came in on schedule, but if it was late, they would probably stay in port and bait their trowel lines and head on home in the morning. He then asked Mr. Wagner to help bait the lines, which in some instances could take all night, depending on the situation. And Mr. Wagner said that he'd be glad to, and then he left the wharf. It was about 7.30 in the evening, and that was the last uh, that anybody saw of Lewis Wagner in Portsmouth. He apparently learned that the bait wasn't or didn't arrive on the early train, and knowing how good John's business was, came up with an off-the-wall plan to head on over to Smutty Nose and rob the Hotfits clean before the men got home. Somewhere along the bank of the Piscataqua River, Mr. Wagner stole a dory, which back then looked a whole lot like an oversized canoe with a flat bottom. The owner had just replaced the worn-out thole pins an hour before it went missing, and the thole pins being what the oar slides into to keep it in place while you row your ass off to get where you're going. 
Now, Mr. Wagner then performed what might be thought of today as a rowing feat for the ages. He rode 12 miles out to sea to the Isles of Shoals and straight to Smutty Nose Island. Now, rowing 12 miles for folks back then wasn't by far impossible. In fact, Mr. Honvet had made the three-hour row, one-way rowing trip dozens of times, so it wasn't hard to think that a man in dire straits would have enough oomph to pull it off. Now, it's about 10 o'clock at night. The three women back on at the Honvet house decided that they weren't going to get up any, weren't going to wait up any longer. So I imagine by then supper was starting to get cold, and they were ready to, uh, you know, give the men down the road when they did get home. So they slipped in their nightgowns, and Marion fixed a bed for Karen in the kitchen, where it was warmer than the bedrooms, she and Aneth, and then went to an adjoining bedroom to get a little sleep. Long about the time they were doing that, up rode Louis Wagner and the dory that the owner was tearing the country apart back on the main one looking for. Now, rather than land in the cove where the Clarabella was usually tied off, he rode all the way around to the far side of the island, and slid out on the rocky shore like a snake in the grass. He stood on the rocks and stared at the Huntman's cottage for a few hours. He really must have been determined, folks, because even though it was spring time, the seas were calm, but there was still a, some snow on the ground, and that was what we call in the mountains blue-ass cold. After the light showing in the windows went to black, he gave it another hour or so until he figured the women were all asleep. Then he trundled up the mountain slope like he was walking up the church steps and right to the front door of the house. Now, this ain't going to get no better, folks. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Now, once he got to the door, Mr. Wagner tried the door, and sure enough... It wasn't locked. It swung right open like the house was asking him to come on in. Apparently, the women had left it unlocked for the men to get get through when they got back home. Now, back then, most doors were bolted instead of locked with a key. Now, we've all seen doors bolted back in the old westerns. That's where you see them take a board and lay it across the front of the door to bolt it shut. He walked in to the dark kitchen and closed the door behind him. Then he figured that he ought to take a precaution just in case the women woke up and jammed a piece of wood in the latch of the bedroom door where Marion and Aneth slept. He fully intended to pull it all off without anybody noticing, but it all went out the window when Ring commenced to barking his lungs out, which woke Karen up. Seeing the dark figure lumbering around the kitchen, she asked, John, is that you? Marion sat up in bed and yelled, Karen, is something wrong? John scared me, Karen yelled back while she was still half asleep. With the wheels coming off his perfect plan pretty quick, he figured that if he could get Karen to shut up, he could get things back on track and be pretty well gone before any of them knew it. So Mr. Fogner grabbed a chair and used it Ric Flair style across Karen's teeth. All that did was make it all worse because Karen started screaming like the house was on fire. Apparently, now in full lizard brain panic, Mr. Wagner just kept on whacking Karen with the chair. Of course, that caused Marion to jump out of bed, screaming, Karen, what's wrong? As she pulled on the jammed-up door trying to get out. Karen finally got to her feet as Louis Wagner bashed her even harder with the chair. 
He hit her so hard with a chair, she bounced off the bedroom door, knocking a piece of wood loose and had the door jammed shut. As the door opened, Karen fell inside the bedroom and landed on Marion's feet. The deviant Wagner ran over with what was left of the chair and hit Marion and Anthony. Aneth, to, so, you know, despite all that Marion could do to manage to drag her sister out of harm's way, then closed the, bolted the door and Lewis tried to force his way in. To beat it all, he didn't make it, but she had all the women inside safe, she thought. Scared half to death, Aneth watched the whole thing from the corner of the room where she had landed after being smacked with the chairs. Marion told her to run and hide. Now, whether she was groggy from being hit with the chair or just frozen in fear, I don't know. But she managed to stagger out the window, standing barefoot in the snow, not thinking to run. Marion yelled again for her to run, but it was too late. Mr. Wagner had gave up on trying to get in the bolted room and apparently circled around to try the window. At that point, he was convinced that they knew who he was and he had to eliminate witnesses. As it turned out, nobody had seen who he was, and he could have just ran for it. So as he ran up to the poor Aneth, standing out there in the snow, where all three women he knew who he was then because the moonlight hit him. It was a half moon. And then Aneth screamed Lewis. And a man was shocked to see what the man did next. And, you know, the man that she had accepted as her own, and as Aneth stretched out her hands to, you know, thinking he was there to help, he went to the wood pile and grabbed an axe, and then he drove it into Aneth's head. And Mr. Fogner just kept hacking at her even after she went down. He did all that right in full view of Marion, who stood there watching like she was watching a big screen TV playing one of them hacker movies. She was so close to the, him on the other side of the window that she could have reached out and touched him. Seeing Aneth couldn't be helped, the only thing Marion could do was go about saving herself and her sister. She turned to the bed where Karen was kneeling with her head on the mattress and trying to keep the woman or get the woman to her feet. She kept telling Karen that she had to run for it, but her poor sister was in the verge of going unconscious and could only managed to say no. I'm just too tired. That's about the time Mr. Fogner finished up with Aneth and went back to the bedroom door, this time with the blood-covered axe. The Marion went directly into self-preservation mode and told Karen they were both doomed if they stayed together. She wrapped herself up in a heavy skirt and hearing the whack-a-doodle Wagner out knocking on the door like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, she grabbed Ring, climbed through the window, and almost stepped on Aneth and ran for it. As she ran, it was either the thorns that grow there or the ice or, or maybe both of them that pretty much tore her feet to shreds. She expected to find Mr. Wagner's boat in the cove and was past panic mode when it wasn't there. Her first thought was to run and hide in the cellar of an empty building nearby, but she thought better of it. She figured Mr. Wagner knew her so well that she'd he'd be thinking the same thing, just maybe thinking exactly like her. So being that or thinking that, she ran 
out of real estate and and then along the shore in the far end of the island and as she ran back by the cottage she stayed as far away from it as humanly possible and that's when she heard what she thought was the screams of death of her sister Carrie. Now, shivering from the cold and holding ring as close to her as she could, she crawled between two rocks near the water's edge where the pounding waves completely drowned out all the sounds. Now, while all that was going on, back inside the cottage, Karen was still staggering around trying to get through the window when Mr. Wagner busted through the bedroom door. Uh, and no, from on any account that I read, he didn't yell, here's Johnny. But he swung an axe like a madman at the poor half-stunned woman. The first whack knocked Karen down, but the second, third, and the rest of them missed her completely. In fact, he must have had a good panic going himself because he beat the bed, the dresser, the nightstand, and, and all of it into toothpicks before the axe finally broke. And that didn't stop him, though. He twisted a handkerchief around Karen's neck and pulled with everything he had until he was sure she was dead. I imagine it was about now that Mr. Wagner really got worried once he saw Marion had got away. Wasn't hard to tell how right Marion was about him looking in and around all the buildings, and because he left a bloody trail and footprints around between and through every building on the island trying to find her. He hunted her for as long as he could, but he finally had to give up on it after he figured out that it was getting dark and or getting late and if he wanted to still get out of there while it was dark he had to go on now he went back to the house and dragged Anna's body by the feet into the kitchen for some odd reason nobody knows and folks you can't write this stuff into a slasher movie but he actually brewed him a hot pot of tea they knew this because he left blood stains all over the handle of the teapot he then figured that he did a little bit of that nice supper since it was still waiting for john and the other men to get home after he ate a bite and rested his spell, he proceeded to rip the house apart looking for all that money that he thought John had poked in a hidey hole somewhere. He managed to find about $15, and then he left, leaving Anna's body on the floor beside the clock that had been knocked off the mantel during the slobber knocker that left two dead. The clock had stopped at seven minutes past one in the morning. Uh, it was dang near 8 o'clock the next morning before Marion got to the nerve to pop her head out of her hiding place and see what was going on. She tried to wave down and scream at men working on a neighboring island, but they didn't hear or see her. She finally had to walk across the shallow breakwater that goes between Smutty Nose and Malaga to wave her arms and yell for help for the children of George Ingersburden, who were playing in the outside of Appledore. Once they figured out that she needed help. Jorge rode a quarter mile over to Marion's. Matter of fact, he brought her back home to take care of her. Well, let his wife take care of her. Then after hearing her story, stuff got real, and he gathered up a posse of men with guns to go back and have a look around Smutty Nose. When the posse landed on the island, they found a horrible deed that read like it had been written down in blood all over the island because that's pretty much it had. The finding no culprit on Smutty Nose, the posse went back to Appledore and poked around there next. They figured it was a real possibility that the madman had, or just might have pulled a fast one on them and was right over there repeating the whole thing all over again at their house. A few hours later, the Clarabella was seen on the horizon. She was headed home. 
seeing a signal on shore, Matthew and Ivan rode a tender to Appledore, and John sailed the schooner to its boring and smutty nose. Now, a tender is a small boat that they used to tend to the maintenance of the schooner. Now, when the tender landed and the men told were told that uh, there had been some trouble over on Smutty Nose, they rushed to the, the Inger's Burden house where they found Marion in a terrible state. Aside from being in a state of shock from what she'd seen and been through, the poor woman's almost froze to death, too. So... Of course, Ivan wanted to know where Aneth was, and marrying him and uh, was and uh, marrying, and then him is at home. Is all she said. She said Aneth is at home, and uh, Ivan and Mary, Matthew then rode the tender over to uh, hell bent for leather for smutty doves. They landed at the same time as John, and the three men ran up to the house to see what was going on. Ivan pushed the door open and entered the kitchen. There lying on the floor with a long gold hair matted in a pool of dry blood was his wife. He pretty much just covered his face crying and went out the door and fell over in shock landing in the snow. Now John and Matthew uh, looked through the whole house that was completely destroyed then sailed to Clarabella over to Appledore and it was later in the afternoon before John and the others got to Portsmouth to tell the police. The story spread fast. A description of Louis Wagner was telegraphed to the police all over the coastal states, and even the newspapers were filled with all the gory details, just like all the news always is. Now, the two men who knew Mr. Wagner told police that they had seen him over in Newcastle about 6 o'clock that morning. The stolen dory was also found in Newcastle, near a place called Devil's Den. The new thole pins were worn almost a quarter of an inch, so somebody had been doing a good bit of rowing in a short amount of time. After swinging by the Johnsons and catching up his rent, Mr. Wagner changed his clothes and caught a 9 a.m. train for Boston. There he bought some new boots and a new suit of clothes, then turned on his charm with a few women that he knew at a boarding house. John Huntford must have told police where Mr. Wagner liked to hang out because that evening Boston police found him and, and arrested him. And he was wearing his new suit over his old clothes and didn't fight to resist or say very much of anything as they drug him off to jail. Now the next day Mr. Wagner was dragged from jail to the Boston Depot uh, for, for the trip to Portsmouth. He was followed by a crowd of about 500 pissed-off people demanding his head on a silver platter. At each depot along the route, the train was met by outraged folks who were demanding his immediate extermination. Now, that wasn't nothing because there was a crowd of about 10,000 filling the streets in Portsmouth, and he was almost torn to shreds before they got him to jail. But his trip wasn't over yet because Smutty Nose was in the jurisdiction of the state of Maine and he'd have to be tried there. Three days later, when he was moved from Portsmouth Jail to the train, a lynch mob of over 200 fishermen from the islands and the coast were waiting with a nice new pre-boiled, well-oiled rope made out of Kentucky hemp. Now the police escort drew their weapons and a company of Marines... Uh, reserves, that is, in full battle attire came from the Navy base. Now, but the mob wasn't so easily deterred. They rained huge rocks and bricks down on the whole party, but they 
did finally make it all the way to Maine in the trial of Louis Wagner, fired up on June 9, 1873. After nine days of testimony for witness after witness completely decimated him on the stand, the jury just took 55 minutes of deliberation to find him guilty as charged. He was sentenced to be hanged for his trouble, but that wasn't all. He broke out of jail before a week and passed, but had passed, but he uh, was recaptured in short order in New Hampshire. And on June 25, 1875, just 27 months after the crime, Louis Wagner was dragged out in the yard of the state prison in Thomaston, Maine, marched up the gala steps and hanged. He denied even being there despite all the evidence against him. All the way to the grave, that is. Now, the Hotford's trust and kindness of Mr. Wagner, well, let's just say some people you just can't help. On the morning of March 6, 1873, I guess Mr. Wagner felt like paying them back for all they did for him. Now, Marin and John Huntford were never able to live on the island again or any of the islands again. They moved to Portsmouth, where John continued to work as a fisherman for many years after the tragedy. Now, Ivan never was the same. For a while, he couldn't bear to leave the Isles, where he and Aneth had spent their last days. He worked as a carpenter on Appledore for the rest of that summer. He was never out of sight of the little red cottage where his happiness was taken from him. He never spoke unless he was spoken to first, and uh, never even lifted his eyes from his work when he talked to people. At the end of the summer, he went back alone to Norway and was nobody knows what happened to him after that. He was never heard from again. Folks, I hope you got something out of this story. It's another one that needed telling. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please. Or follow whichever episode you're, or whatever podcatcher you're listening on. Anyway, come on over to Facebook group Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast where we can talk about everything Appalachian or about anything else you want to bring up. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian mystery, murder mystery, or legend, and I will see you then. <laughs>